and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this on Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023, here in Chicago. And in this edition of the podcast, we come back to the topic of the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age. We've already covered the plain words in the New Testament that deal with this matter, and we've dealt with the type of the children of Israel running the race to enter into the good land, as Paul talks about in Hebrews, well, I should say the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 3, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in this episode, we want to cover the parables in the New Testament that talk about this matter. There's four of them in particular that I want to highlight, and hopefully we can get through all four. Again, when we're covering this topic, we're basically just doing a survey because there's so much more to say. But the basic point is to just impress believers that this is a great aspect of the truth in the New Testament, the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age. As I've said before, because there's so much of a stress in these days on the free gift of salvation, which is a wonderful truth in the New Testament, but because that side of the truth is so much, so much stressed, and the side of the truth that has to deal with uh, our responsibility for how we live the Christian life is so much neglected. So many Christians today are just so careless and so casual in their following of Christ. It's not right. And so we need to hear this truth. We are going to give an account to the Lord for how we live our Christian life. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so it's a very, very serious matter, a very, very sober matter, and one we really need to pay a good deal of attention to. As I shared in the previous episode, uh, this, this is not the central thing in the Bible. The central thing in the Bible is God's desire to be one with man. And he carries out that desire by imparting himself into humanity. He gives us his divine life. He enters into us as life. And then uh, after we're saved, after we're born anew in Christ, he transforms us into the image of Christ from glory to glory as we behold and reflect the Lord and his life works in us to transform us by the renewing of the mind. That's Romans 12, 2, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. That's really what's on God's heart. That's what God really cares about. And so I don't want to overly stress this truth of the reward and discipline of the believers, but I do feel it is something Christians need really need to hear in these days because, as I say, the sharing on this topic is so unbalanced uh, among believers today. So we need to hear this kind of a warning as an incentive to help us realize we need to run the race so that we are prepared to meet the Lord when he comes back. Very, very serious, very, very sober matter. And I want to say here that my own thinking on this topic has been very much adjusted as I've gotten into it. In particular, uh, as I've been reading, and I've I've mentioned this book a a few times before, uh, as I've been reading The Judgment Seat of Christ by D.M. Panton. It's a short book, but puts together a lot of the important verses on this topic. And he's one of the main ones in church history who has really stressed this matter of the reward and discipline of the believers. Now, if you get his book, uh, the older edition, it's on page 76, he says this comment, and this is what helped me a great deal. He says, Let us grant, if we choose, that God has shrouded the temporary fate of the excluded in impenetrable mystery, but the fact of exclusion remains. Now, what he means by that 
is that the New Testament makes it pretty clear that it's very possible for a believer to be excluded from reigning with Christ during the millennial kingdom, whether that's in the plain words, whether it's in the type of the children of Israel, or whether it's in the parables, as we'll be covering in this episode of the podcast. But how they're going to be spending that 1,000 years is much less clear. The New Testament doesn't spell that out too directly. He goes on to say there are some hints, and again, we'll see some of that as we cover these parables. But it's not spelled out very directly. So we can only say too much. We can only try to put some pieces of the puzzle together, but we can't be too definite about it. But as he says, the fact of exclusion remains. But then he goes on, and he does say that he feels Presumably, the great proportion of the excluded continue to enjoy the conditions of paradise, the very far better of the Lord's special presence that Paul talks about in Philippians 1.23. So, in other words, for most of the believers, even though they're excluded from reigning with Christ, they're still going to be in a much more pleasant situation during that 1,000-year period than they are on the earth today. It's a much, much better place to be but they will miss the topmost enjoyment of reigning with Christ. So their punishment is to miss that topmost enjoyment. Now some believers, it seems, will suffer a much more serious discipline than that. But that helped me a great deal. And it seems to be fitting to the condition of many believers today who don't lead evil, sinful lives. They don't damage the body of Christ. But they basically, they're careless about their Christian life. And they just don't follow Christ in a very serious way. So what he's saying here is that it's possible, and again, we can't be definite about it, that these believers will go to a much more pleasant place than they are in today in this age. But eventually, it seems to me what may happen is they will begin to realize how they wasted the opportunity to follow Christ and to serve him today by caring for the world and loving the things of the world instead of pursuing Christ. Because they'll see the reward of those who were faithful to follow Christ and how they're reigning with Christ in his kingdom, which will be much, much better than the situation they're in. Again, a lot of that speculation, but at least it helped me to understand that it's not the case that the excluded believers will necessarily be in a place of suffering for that 1,000-year period. So now let's go on to look at these parables. Uh, And the parables I want to cover are the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Then in Matthew 25, you have two parables, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and the parable of the unfaithful servant. And in Luke 19, you have the parable of the minus. And there's one other portion we may get to. That's in Luke chapter 12, where the Lord talks about the servant and how the servant looks for his return. I'm not sure if you call that a parable or not. We may get to that as well. But those are the four parables I want to cover and basically then possibly this other portion of the scripture. Again, we're just going to go over these not at all in a detailed way, but just to kind of give you a basic introduction. So really, really, um, when you have the opportunity, spend some time with these parables and consider them before the Lord for yourself. I think you might find this a very, very useful exercise. And because this is just a survey, I won't be reading the parables and going through them verse by verse. I'll just be pointing out the highlights. But the first parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, that's, as I say, in Matthew 18, 
the verses are verse 23 through the end of the chapter, verse 35. And in this parable, the there's a servant who owes his master 10,000 talents, which is it's like a crazy sum of money. Without getting into the specifics, it's you know, there's different ways to calculate it, but it could be a sum of money that be, would be worth north of a, a billion dollars today. I mean, it's just a crazy amount of money that this servant owed his master. But then he, the, the master says, okay, we're going to sell you and, and so you can make payment on the debt you owe me. But the servant falls down and he begs for compassion from the master and the master forgives him the debt, just forgives the whole thing. Well, thank the Lord for that. But then what does this servant do? He goes out and he finds a servant, one of his fellow servants, who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wages. So that's not a small amount of money. It's like nothing compared to 10,000 talents. But it's not a small amount of money. It was a, a significant debt. But what does he do? The, the, this one who owed him the money begs for forgiveness. But instead of forgiving him, this evil servant demands that he makes repayment. And so he throws him into prison, he says, until the debt should be repaid. Well, the fellow servants see what this servant did, and they go and tell the master about it. And then that master calls the servant to him, and he says this in Matthew 18, verse 32. His master called him and said to him, You evil bondservant, all that debt I forgave you, for you asked me, should you not also have had mercy upon your fellow bondservant, even as I had mercy upon you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tormentors until he should repay all that was owed. And here's the lesson the Lord wants us to draw from the parable. So shall my heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive your brother, each of you, from your hearts. Now, I'm not quite sure that many Christians have this parable in their Bible. I mean, the Lord gave this parable because Peter asked him the question. The Apostle Peter the one who had seen the vision of who Christ was and to whom the Lord said, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens. Peter was the one who asked him this question. He says to him in verse 21, How often shall I for my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So first of all, this is clearly a parable for the believers because it's the believers who are asking the Lord how they need to forgive their brothers. That's the first lesson. But secondly, the slave went to the master and begged for forgiveness, and the master forgave him all the debt. How can that not signify a saved believer? How can that not signify a saved believer? It's impossible. It has to signify a saved believer. Are you telling me, well, he, he didn't really forgive him? He was just testing him or something? I, I can't imagine. You know, th these, these people who, who try to insist there can't be any serious problem between you and the Lord after you're saved, what do they do with this parable? You know, some people would just say, well, well, we can't take the parables too specifically. The Lord's just making kind of a general point. Uh, that's, you know, again, you, you treat the Bible like that. You know, uh, Pember uses this phrase, culpably ignorant. He says some believers are culpably ignorant of the Lord's will. I mean, to be culpable means you bear responsibility. He's saying they are responsible for their own ignorance because they will not see what the Bible is clearly teaching. If you want to see how the Lord shows us we should treat the parables, look at Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. And also in Matthew 13, the parable of the tares. The Lord goes out point by point 
in each of those parables, and he'll, he lays out, this is the significance of each item I talked about. Just about every item he talks about, he explains when he gives its meaning. He says, this is the meaning of each of the items. He was very specific about how to interpret the parables. That's the lesson he's showing us. That's why those interpretations are there, to show us how we need to come to the parables. So you can't just brush them off that way if you take the Bible in a serious way. If you don't take the Bible in a serious way, I can't say anything to you. Neither can the Bible. You know, but we, we should be those as the believers in Christ who are trying to come to, Bi- to the Bible in a serious way and see what it's really saying. And as I say, you just can't even, there's just no way to say this is not referring to a real believer. And for sure, you know, I think we all know in our own experience, we can be very unforgiving toward our fellow believers at times. And we may know of believers who also are like that, but we can't exclude ourselves. We don't dare exclude ourselves from among that class. We need the Lord's mercy that we would behave toward our believers in a proper way. So for sure, this could be some of the believer's experience. But also, look what it says at the end of the parable. His master was angry and delivered him to the tormentors until he should repay all that was owed. So he's not going to the tormentors forever and ever. He's going to the tormentors until he repays all that is owed. That means the punishment is only going to be for a certain period of time. And then the Lord, listen to the Lord's lesson. So shall my heavenly Father do to you also, if you do not forgive your brother, each of you, from your hearts. So first of all, the lesson we're to draw from this parable is not repent so you don't go to hell. It's not repent so your sins can be forgiven. He says you need to forgive your brother from your heart. Oh, the Heavenly Father is going to do that to you. So this is a lesson for believers. You don't have your sins forgiven in the sense of being born again by forgiving your brother from the heart. You have your sins forgiven by believing in Jesus. But here he's saying the way to have our sins forgiven is to forgive our brother. That is something for believers. That's surely a word for believers. There's no question about that. But then secondly, you have to ask, Okay, so what did the servant owe his master? He didn't owe the 10,000 talents anymore. That's not what this is saying. That had been forgiven. Once it's forgiven, it can't be unforgiven. It's already forgiven. What the servant owed his master was to forgive his fellow slave from the heart. And he was going to have to go through a period of torment until he recognized that and had the grace to forgive his brother because the brother really owed him. It wasn't that the brother didn't owe him a debt. He really owed him a debt. I don't want to make light of that. Like it's a hundred denarii, as I say, compared to 10,000 talents is basically nothing. But in and of itself, it's not nothing. It's a pretty significant debt, a hundred days wages, pretty significant debt. So it's not that it was not a real debt, but the one who was offended to whom the debt was owed needed to show grace to his fellow servant, realizing the extent to which he had been shown grace by his master, that that is what was owed. And because he failed to do that, that's why he was delivered to the tormentors. Now you could say this torment is going to take place in this age, and very often I think that's the case, that we do experience the Lord's discipline to try to deal with us and to break us down and to humble us so that we begin to exhibit something of Christ in our living, in his forbearance towards the saints, in his grace, In his having mercy upon our fellow believers in Christ, we begin to exhibit these virtues of Christ. I don't like to use this term Christ-like. I don't become Christ-like. It's Christ living in me, expressing 
the grace, the mercy, the charity, as the King James Version says, the love in modern translations, toward our fellow believers through a period of discipline. That's how these things often are developed in us. But it may very well refer to a discipline in the coming age as well. There's no reason you can exclude that from this interpretation of the parable. Being delivered to the tormentors until we pay, as the Lord says here, all that was owed to produce that kind of forgiveness from the heart. And I should add that this parable exactly matches the word spoken by the Lord earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, the Lord says, If you forgive men their offenses, your heavenly Father shall also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their offenses, neither shall your heavenly Father forgive your offenses. This parable, in a sense, is really just expositing that direct word by the Lord. The Lord warns his disciples directly, If we want to be forgiven by the Father, we need to have a forgiving heart toward our fellow believers in Christ. So really, that's what this parable, in a nutshell, is talking about. So again, this is, it's very just impossible to see how anyone could say this is not referring to a real believer and warning us that, yes, we may face a very, very serious discipline when we see the Lord if we have been, in this case, to be very specific about it, unforgiving toward our fellow believers in Christ. Very sober word here in Matthew chapter 18. So now we come to the parables in Matthew 25. And with all of these parables, I've, I've already covered them more at length in different episodes of the podcast or notes that I have on the website. And I'll link to a lot of those in the program notes below, so I don't have to mention that again. But uh, in this program, as I say, we're just doing a survey. So we're going to go through these very quickly and Again, encourage you to get into this more for yourself and really allow the Lord to speak to you through these parables. So the first parable in Matthew 25, in verses 1 to, 15, 1 to 13, rather, is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And this has caused a lot of believers and a lot of Bible teachers a lot of trouble because they're trying to find some way to say that this is not talking about genuine believers, when it refers to the foolish virgins, they feel it has to be speaking of unbelievers somehow. And when you try to interpret the parable in that way, you're just, you're just doing violence to the scriptures. You're wrestling with the scriptures to your own destruction. It's obvious this is talking about, has to be talking about real believers. And that's how we should take it. But they don't see the matter of the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age. Once you see this matter, then this parable becomes very plain in its meaning, what it's really talking about. That it is saying that some believers may be excluded from the wedding feast when the Lord returns. Very, very serious matter, very sober matter, but that's the clear meaning of this parable. I mean, consider, okay, the different aspects of the parable that show, show us it has to be talking about genuine believers when it refers to the foolish virgins. And first of all, these are all virgins, it's not that they're true virgins and false virgins. They're five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. They're all genuine virgins, number one. Number two, they all hear the bridegroom's voice when the Lord returns. They all rise up at the same time. Clearly, this is referring to genuine believers. And the, really, the ultimate proof is that all the virgins, even the foolish ones, had oil in their lamps. That's in verse 8. The foolish virgins 
said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. So it's not that they couldn't light their lamps. They had oil in their lamps, but they didn't have enough. Now, when the Bible gives us a symbol very often, just about all the time, it shows us how to interpret the symbol. So here you have the symbol of the lamp. Well, how do we understand the lamp here? That's based on Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. So the Bible tells us directly that the lamp here signifies our human spirit. Again, you have to interpret the scripture with the scripture. So they have oil in their lamps, in their human spirit. That means these are regenerated believers in significance. John 3, chapter 6, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the Spirit of God had entered into their spirit. But what's the vessel? The vessel is who we are. That signifies our soul. Romans chapter 9, verse 21, we are vessels unto honor if we're believers in Christ. We are vessels. We have a lamp, but we are vessels. And as believers, we all have the Spirit in our lamp, the Holy Spirit in the lamp of our human spirit. But how much do we allow the Lord to work in us by the process of transformation so that the Holy Spirit permeates our soul, our mind, emotion, and will? We spent some time talking about that in the previous episode of this podcast. This is transformation. This is the salvation of the soul. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. And again, I'll link to that in the program notes below. But that's what this is talking about. Yes, every believer is regenerated. You have to be regenerated to be a real believer in Christ. And all the virgins here have the oil in their lamps. That's not the problem. The question is, do they have the oil in their vessels, in their souls? Have they allowed the Lord to do some work of transformation in them? If so, then when they see the Lord, they go into the wedding feast according to this parable. If not, they're going to be shut out. So when the bridegroom comes, in verse 10, it says, Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. Saints, we need to be ready for the Lord's return. Very, very sober word here. What does it say next? And the door was shut. That door won't open again until the wedding feast is over. Now, it's very hard to say from the New Testament how long this wedding feast is going to last. It may be during the period of the Great Tribulation only, that three and a half years. It could be longer. It could be for the whole 1,000-year reign of Christ. It could be. That's what this signifies. It's, it's hard to define. There just really isn't enough evidence in the New Testament to make a clear statement about that. But for sure, for that period of time, the foolish virgins, the ones who were not ready, will not be able to enter into the wedding feast because the door is shut. There's no second chance here in terms of getting into the wedding feast after the door is shut. So it goes on. They come back afterwards. They try to open. They say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he tells them, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then he draws the moral of the parable. Watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. He would not say that to unbelievers. He wouldn't say that to unbelievers. He only tells his believers to watch. To unbelievers, he says, repent. For the kingdom of the heavens. But it's to his believers he's telling us to watch. And that's what this parable is about. It's about being watchful for the Lord's return. Now some people, those people who want to try to argue that this is talking about unsaved people when it talks about the foolish virgins, the one verse they can appeal to 
is verse 12, where the Lord says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And they point out in John chapter 10, verse 14, the Lord says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And therefore they say, the Lord would never say, I don't know you, to real believers. But the answer to that is very simple. It's a different kind of knowing that the Lord is talking about. One is in an objective sense, one is in a more experiential sense. And that's proven by the fact that in Matthew 25, verse 12, and in John chapter 10, verse 14, there are two different Greek words used for knowing. So it's a different type of knowing. So you can't use that to try to run counter to all the other proof you have that these are signifying actual believers. It just doesn't work. And finally, look at, look at their punishment. Their punishment is, therefore, you go to Gehenna. That's not what it said here. In the New Testament, where when it, most translations say hell, it's literally, the word, literal word there is Gehenna. It was a place outside of Jerusalem where they dumped the trash. That's what signifies the lake of fire in the New Testament. That's not what it said here. It doesn't say, okay, because you don't have the oil, therefore you go to Gehenna, therefore you go to hell, to the lake of fire. No, it just says you don't go into the wedding feast. Again, they lose the reward, which you see all over the New Testament. That's what this is speaking of. The loss of reward and a very significant suffering, even though, as I said before, it may be that with so many of those who are excluded, they may be in a much more pleasant situation than they are today, but they miss the topmost enjoyment. That's what this parable is speaking of. So no question, this is talking about genuine believers in Christ. So that will do it for this segment of the program, and we will continue with the rest of the parables when we come back after the break. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So now we come to the parable of the talents, which is the second parable in Matthew 25, or you could also call it the parable of the unfaithful servant. And when we look at this, we'll compare it at the same time with the parable in Matthew 19 that I wanted to get into, the parable of the minas, because you really have to compare these two parables, their sister parables, to understand what they're showing us in the New Testament. And in both of these parables, you have a master who is going away, and he commits some responsibility to his servants, and he wants them to make a profit before he comes back. And so they're really, very, in some ways, very similar But there's important differences between the two, very important differences. Now, if you've been listening to this program, you know I appreciate very much the the ministry of Witness Lee. He was the brother who taught me the Bible. He was a co-worker of Watchman Nee. And he very much stressed, uh, stressed this matter of the reward and discipline of the believers. But I don't agree with his teaching concerning the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 because he felt the three servants here signify all the believers. And every believer gets at least one talent. And then if you're not a faithful believer, as you see at the end of that parable, you get cast into the outer darkness. I held that view for a long time, 
in large part because that's what he taught. But as I considered that parable for myself, I just came to realize almost surely that's not the case. For one thing, if it signifies all the believers, then you should have ten servants. But you don't have ten servants. You have three servants. If you have ten virgins, if that signifies all the believers, or just about all the believers, you would expect that number of servants. But you don't have that. You only have three. Ten in the New Testament, in the Bible, is a number of completion, like the Ten Commandments. The number seven and the number twelve are also numbers of completion. Three is not a number of completion. So uh, this parable is not talking about all the believers in Christ. It could have said ten servants. That the, the parable in Matthew, or rather in Luke 19, does talk about ten servants. So he, the Lord could easily have said, if that was his meaning here, he could easily have said there were ten servants, but he only says there's three. So, first of all, for that reason, it really seems this is talking about some believers among the believers as a whole, not all of the believers. And the second point in this regard is that the parable is dealing with the varied gifts given to each of the believers. One servant gets five talents, another gets two, and another gets one. So it's showing us the principle of the varied gifts. So we shouldn't expect that every believer is going to get one of these gifts. They don't all get the same gifts. Again, in Luke chapter 19, every servant is given one mina. So that's the parable that deals with all of the believers and the gifts given to all the believers. Luke, uh, Matthew 25, rather, is talking about the special the saints who are especially gifted among the believers and their special responsibility before the Lord. And that's borne out by the fact that the gift they receive in Matthew 25 is so much greater than the gift in Luke 19. In Matthew 25, it's a matter of talents. A talent in the New Testament was worth about 6,000 denarii, 6,000 days wages. That was a very, very big gift. Even if you only got one talent, you still had a tremendous gift. And of course, the one, another servant got two. Uh, one servant was especially gifted. He got five talents. So these are the ones among the believers, what this parable is showing us, the ones who are especially gifted. Now, the parable in the New Testament that deals with the gifts that are given to all the believers that we all have in common, that is the parable of the minas in Luke chapter 19. And there, each servant receives one mina. And a mina was worth about 100 denarii. So a talent was 6,000 denarii, a mina is 100 denarii. So you see, a talent was many, many times more valuable than a mina. So for sure, Matthew 25 is not talking about all the believers. It's talking about some of the especially gifted ones among the believers. Luke 19, that's where we see the parable about the gifts given to all the believers. But for sure... This parable is talking about genuine believers when it talks about the unfaithful servant. Again, it doesn't say true and false servants. The Lord recognizes him as a genuine servant. Even in uh, verse 26, when he's rebuking him, he says, evil and slothful bondservant. He doesn't say, you false servant. He recognizes this is a genuine servant. The problem was not whether he's genuine or false as a servant. The problem is whether he is faithful or slothful. That is the problem with this one's service. Basically, he failed to value what the Lord had given to him. And I think so many believers today don't value what the Lord has given to them. Whether it's a case of a mina or whether it's a case of a talent, so many of us just fail to appreciate just how great a gift the Lord has given us, the opportunity to serve him, to follow him, 
to labor on his behalf, whether it's in a great way or whether it's in a small way. What an incredible blessing that is, saints, that we have the opportunity to serve the Lord in this age. Oh, don't throw that away. This life is so short. Don't love the world. Don't give yourself to to seek after the worldly things. Give yourself to follow Christ. Value what the Lord has given to you. You'll be so much more blessed. The life you have will be so full of meaning compared to what you, you'll have if you follow after the worldly things. There's no comparison. So the, the unfaithful servant here didn't value what the Lord had given him. He, he buried it away. And so the Lord rebuked him, and the talent what he had was taken from him and given to the one who had the ten talents. But the significant difference here between the what happens to the servants in the parable of the minas and what happens here is this servant is cast into the outer darkness. That's Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. Cast out that unprofitable bondservant into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. So here again we need to understand this parable is speaking of the especially gifted believers. Now when you look at the parable of the minas in Luke 19, the one there who's not faithful in that parable, all it says is he has his mina taken away from him. He does not go into the outer darkness. You know, there's a principle in the New Testament to those who, who, to whom much has been given, much more will be required. And that's what you see in Matthew 25. This one was given so much more, he should have developed something for Christ and he failed to do so. And the Lord considers that to be very, very serious. And so this believer, this especially gifted believer, doesn't just lose his talent. He is cast into the outer darkness. Now, a lot of Bible teachers and a lot of Christians They just make the wrong assumption that the outer darkness is the lake of fire and therefore uh, this uh, unfaithful servant has to be a false believer. He wasn't real. This is just, you shake your head with this kind of teaching and this kind of understanding. You're forcing your theology on the Bible. There's nothing in the New Testament that indicates the outer darkness is the same thing as the lake of fire. You know, there are two things in the New Testament that are only mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. One is the kingdom of the heavens, and the other is the outer darkness. And specifically, the outer darkness is only mentioned in relation to the kingdom of the heavens. Now, it doesn't define too much what the outer darkness is, but by that fact alone, it shows us the outer darkness is a region outside of the kingdom of the heavens where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Not at all a pleasant place. Uh, As I've said, uh, many believers will be in a much more pleasant place. They won't receive this kind of punishment, but some believers will. I've said before, there's there's degrees of reward for the overcoming saints, which you see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. But what the New Testament shows us, even though it doesn't get into it too, too much, as we said at the outset of this program, we do see there are degrees of discipline for the excluded believers the believers who are not faithful to follow Christ in this age. And this is much more serious. With the ten virgins, they simply were shut out of the wedding feast. It doesn't indicate that they went to the outer darkness. But here, this one, who uh, so unfaithfully squandered this tremendous gift he'd been given to the Lord, he goes to the outer darkness. Very, very serious uh, punishment on uh, on this particular type of believer. And we all need to be warned. Uh, if we want to serve the Lord, if we have some gift, we need to be faithful to discharge the responsibility the Lord has given to us. If not, we may face a very serious discipline when the Lord comes back 
not just losing the prize, but an actual punishment, which could be quite serious. But to be clear, it's not talking here about eternity. At most, it's talking about that 1,000-year reign of Christ. It just doesn't spell it out, even how long it may be within that 1,000-year reign of Christ. Maybe he would go to the outer darkness for that entire 1,000 years. Maybe only for a short period of time. It just, the Bible, it just doesn't fill in these blanks for us. So, but we will find out when we see the Lord. But it does give us the fact that this is going to happen. It just doesn't define it too much. Now you compare that with what happens in the parable of the minas in Luke 19. In Luke 19, starting in verse 22, the one who failed to make a profit appears before his master, and his master says to him, You knew I was a strict man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? And to those who stood by, he said, Take his mina from him and give it to him who has the ten minas. So this is, a, again, the loss of reward. There's not an actual punishment here beyond losing the reward, but it's still a very, very serious matter to lose the reward. You compare that with the one who were, ones who were faithful in this parable. Luke 19, verse 16, The first came, saying, Lord, your mina has gained ten minas. And he said, Well done, good bondservant. Because you have been faithful in the least, have authority over ten cities. So a mina, as I said, that's a uh, hundred denarii, a hundred days, days wages. What kind of a return today can you get like that for a hundred days wages you get to rule over ten cities? Are you kidding me? Saints, we have no idea the value of even a small amount of labor for the Lord today. A small amount of serving, of being faithful to Christ will produce so much in the coming age. And it is an incentive the Lord gives us to be faithful to him. In this age, it really matters. The one who uh, produced the five minas, he was given five cities. A mina, a city, that's a good return, saints. That's, that's why they're called the wise virgins. They looked at this and they said, wow, this is what I want to live for. I want to live for Christ and receive that kind of reward. The foolish ones, they were the ones who brushed it aside. Well, I want to get my enjoyment in this age. I want to partake of the blessings of this age. That's what I'm for. So foolish, so foolish. So very foolish, they have no idea. When they see the Lord, the Lord will come and uh, speak this word to him. And just, just the fact that the Lord would speak that word, what a punishment that is. By your own mouth I shall judge you, you evil bondservant. So you knew I was a strict man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Oh, just to hear those words from the one who poured himself out for us as he did, who gave up his life on the cross. How those words would crush us in that day, saints, if we don't gain a profit for the Lord. May the Lord have mercy and make us those who are faithful to labor and to gain a profit. The Lord will reward us far beyond anything we ask or think, saints. Be assured of that. Praise the Lord for that. Now, in considering this parable, I want to read a statement that D.M. Panton has about it in his book, The Judgment Seat of Christ. This is on page 35. And of course, at the beginning of this parable, it tells us the master was going away to receive a kingdom. And then he gives the minas to his servants, and then he comes back. And Panton makes a very, very striking point about the, the real significance of this parable. Panton says this, Officers are required for the administration of a kingdom. So God has deliberately interposed a prolonged period between the two advents, 
that our Lord might be enabled to so test his servants in his absence as to discover which are fitted for positions of responsibility and trust at his return. That's the special meaning of this parable in Luke 19. The Lord is finding out who is qualified to serve him. If you're qualified, you get to rule over ten cities or five cities or, or one city. But if you're not qualified, you get that chance to reign with Christ taken away. You won't have the opportunity to reign with Christ, Christ in the coming age. In eternity, you will. Because in eternity, after the millennial reign of Christ, every believer will reign forever and ever with Christ. Revelation 21, verse 7. But for that 1,000-year period, you lose that opportunity of reigning with Christ. Very, very serious matter. Panton goes on. The nobleman, before he departed, laid plans for the selection of officers to aid him in the administration of the kingdom. He devised a plan for bringing to light who those officers are on his return. This plan is in operation at the present moment. Saints, this plan is in operation at the present moment in your life and in my life, finding out, are we faithful? Can we be entrusted with the responsibility of reigning with Christ in the coming age? That's what the Lord is finding out right now. This plan is in operation at the present moment, purposely so contrived as to reveal individual capacity for office and personal fitness for trust. And, most impressive of all, the long journey is now nearly over, and at any moment, the investigation may begin. I really appreciate that word. A very, very good summary of the meaning of this parable. We are being tested. I like what Pen. Uh, Pember has to say about our life here on earth. He says our life here is an apprenticeship to prepare us to reign with Christ. But in this parable, we see it's a trial to see if we are fit to reign with Christ. And that's how we should look at this parable. And finally, I will just say a few words, as I mentioned, about Luke chapter 12 and the Lord's word about a servant who's waiting for his master. And if that servant is faithful... The Lord says he gets set over all his possessions. This is in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 42. He says, if the servant is faithful, his master is going to set him over all his possessions. But then he says in verse 45, but if that bondservant says in his heart, my master delays his coming and begins to beat the manservants and maidservants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the master of that bondservant will come on a day he does not look for him and at an hour he does not know, and shall cut him in two, and assign his part with the unbelieving. Again, this has to be talking about a real believer. As severe as this punishment is, it's talking about a real believer. First of all, it's the same servant. It's not one servant who's a true servant, and one servant who's a false servant. It's the same servant. The question is, is he a faithful servant, or is he a wicked servant? That's the question. And it says he's going to appoint his portion with the unbelieving. It's not an unbelieving servant here. He is a believing servant. But the Lord says, I am going to appoint his portion with the unbelieving. Very, very serious word. This corresponds to the Lord's word about the unfaithful servant in Matthew 25 who gets cast into the outer darkness, even though it doesn't mention the outer darkness here. Surely it must be referring to the outer darkness. And then he goes on in verses 47 and 48 he says, that bondservant who knew his master's will but did not prepare or do according to his will shall be beaten with many lashes. But he who did not know and did, and did things worthy of blows shall be beaten with few lashes. My goodness, saints. So here, 
the Lord is saying, we may be beaten even. We may be beaten when we see the Lord, if we don't do his will. We have to be so clear. This is not talking about our eternal destiny. It's talking about when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth for that 1,000 year period. But if we don't do the master's will, we may very well be beaten with more stripes or with less stripes, depending on how culpable we are in terms of our knowing of that will. And finally, he says, For to everyone to whom much has been given, from him shall much be required, and to whom much has been committed, they shall ask of him all the more. So there, there you see that principle. The more the Lord gives to us, the more responsibility we have before him. Very, very sober matter. And so that, I think, will conclude this study of the reward and discipline of the believers. All I've tried to do in these messages is to give a brief overview, to give you a very basic impression of the fact that as the believers in Christ, we have to be responsible before the Lord concerning how we live our Christian life. It's a very, very sober matter. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, This you surely know, that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Again, talking about that 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And then he says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7, Therefore do not be partakers with them. Saints, don't let anyone deceive you with these empty words that there's no problem between you and God uh, anymore after you're, you're a saved believer. There can't be any real issue. You're fine. Everything's wonderful. Saints, don't be deceived by those empty words. There's so many warnings in the New Testament about how we are going to have to answer to the Lord for how we live our Christian life. Paul tells us here, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So don't be partakers with them. If we partake with them in that kind of evil behavior, we will also partake in the judgment. Now, it won't be an eternal judgment, but there will be a very serious discipline if we live our life, our Christian life in that kind of a way. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. The Lord is not mocked. And that's what I've been trying to do in these uh, messages is to warn my fellow believers, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, not to give heed to those false teachings, but to consider these matters and realize we have to be very serious and sober before the Lord concerning how we live our Christian life in this age while we still have the time. May we be those who rise up to follow the Lord in a very serious and sober way so that we're ready to meet the Lord joyfully and to reign with him when he comes. Lord, make it so. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.